Welcome to the Federal Society's Practice Group Podcast. The following podcast, hosted by the Federal Society's Civil Rights Practice Group, was recorded on Wednesday, March 11, 2020, during a live telephone conference call held exclusively for Federal Society members. Welcome to the Federal Society's Telephone Conference Call. This afternoon's topic is titled, In the Name of Diversity. My name is Wesley Hodges, and I'm the Associate Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the expert on today's call. Today, we are very fortunate to have with us Mr. Daniel Ortner, who is an attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation. After our speaker gives his remarks, we will have time for your questions. Thank you very much for sharing with us today. Daniel, I pass the baton to you. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be uh, talking about this uh, very important topic. I'm going to be focusing my remarks on what's been happening at the University of California in particular because that's what I've uh, studied uh, most carefully and I've done a lot of public record requests to get information from them. But it's worth noting up front that what's happening there is slowly filtering into other states as well. I'm aware of a couple other states that are considering similar diversity uh, policies and requiring um, diversity statements uh, down the road. It also applies to all schools in California, the whole system of universities in California. With that, I want to begin uh, back in uh, one of the most infamous horrific events of the University of California's history, which is that in 1949, the University of California led the way in establishing loyalty oaths that faculty members were required to take to gain or keep their jobs. Faculty members were required to swear that they would support the U.S. Constitution and that they did not affiliate with the Communist Party or other subversive groups. And ultimately, 26 faculty members lost their jobs because they were unwilling to sign these oaths, and then 37 others uh, resigned in protest against these loyalty oaths. Fortunately, the use of such loyalty oaths was soundly rejected, both in the court of public opinion and in courts all over the country, including the U.S. Supreme Court and the California Supreme Court. In the decision of Keishan, the Board of Regents of the University of New York, the Supreme Court declared that these kind of oaths were unconstitutional because our nation is deeply committed to safeguarding academic freedom, which is of transcendent value to all of us and not merely to the teachers concerned. And after that decision really established the value of academic freedom as a First Amendment concern, established that states cannot impose loyalty oaths on academics or others. Today, it would be uh, fortunately unheard of and utterly unacceptable to fire a professor because that professor is a member of the Communist Party or a progressive or any other uh, political affiliation. And academic freedom protects the right of faculty members to hold and communicate controversial ideas free from discipline. But unfortunately, a thesis is that a type of loyalty oath is making its return, once again, spearheaded by the University of California in the form of a contribution to diversity statement. And unfortunately, this is all being done in the name of diversity. It's a bit ironic that in the name of diversity, there's a return to policies which are antithetical to intellectual diversity. These policies are also a tool for imposing racial and gender discrimination. In California, in particular, there's a Proposition 209, which is a state constitutional amendment, which bars the consideration of affirmative action, affirmative action policies, the consideration of race in hiring, and especially in focus on state universities. And these statements have been used as a backdoor way to get around Prop 209 to engage in discrimination on the basis of race and gender. So it's actually professors at the University of California are the ones sounding the alarm about this issue. Uh, Back in December, Abigail Thompson, who's a professor of mathematics and department chair at the University of California, Davis, uh, and she's also very influential in the American Mathematics uh, Society, 
wrote a, a very scathing opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal calling out the university's ideological litmus test uh, for job applicants. She is, made the analogy to the loyalty oaths uh, from the 1950s and 1960s. And she also wrote something very similar in the notices of the American Mathematics Association just a month before that. The university responded to Professor Thompson, arguing that diversity statements are merely about determining a candidate's readiness and potential for serving the diverse population of students in California, and that they're not an ideological litmus test because candidates are evaluated holistically, and this is just one component um, that they're looking at. So who is actually right about what UC Davis is doing? And then if Abigail Thompson's assessment is accurate, what legal problems do UC Davis's actions raise? So to assess the, those questions, I want to go back to the origins of these diversity statements uh, or of the evaluation of contributions to diversity. Uh, back in 2005, the University of California first introduced an early version of consideration of a faculty member's contribution to diversity. But this policy began largely unobjectionably, very modestly at first. The stated goal was that basically diversity would be considered as one factor among many when evaluating a faculty. It was to ensure that teaching, research, professional, and public service contributions that promote diversity and equal opportunity are to be encouraged and given recognition in the evaluation of the candidate's qualifications. So basically, a faculty member that made an exceptional contribution to diversity, such as through mentoring minority students, or taking the lead in piloting diversity initiatives would receive credit for that in the evaluation process. It was to ensure that things that professors do that are good for the community are not underappreciated, that aren't obviously teaching or research contributions. And so there's nothing really, you know, it's difficult to see anything wrong or sinister about taking these kinds of contributions into account to some degree. From 2005 to about 2015, use of these contributions or these statements rested on the foundation that they were not going to be a fourth leg of evaluation. They were just one factor to be considered. You didn't have to have a contribution to diversity. There was no mandate that every applicant fill out a diversity statement, no suggestion that a candidate without contribution to diversity would be rejected. It was just seen as a plus factor and not as a separate and discrete hiring requirement. That's still what is actually codified in the policy manuals at the University of California. So officially, system-wide, nothing has changed. The Board of Regents has not approved a change. But what's actually happening at the universities today is dramatically different from that. First of all, each and every UC campus requires faculty applicants to submit a separate diversity statement. The only exception there is that UC Santa Barbara for a long time did not require them, but they have shifted in the past couple of months, really, to, to requiring them. And UC Berkeley does not technically require every single department to use them. It is expected that they will unless they provide a reason that they re they're not requiring them up front. But other than that, every single uh, UC campus requires them as part of your application. What's actually happening is even more dramatic than that. At schools like UC Davis, UC Berkeley, and UC Santa Cruz in particular, there's this initiative called the Advancing Faculty Diversity Initiative, where the University of California receives about $2 million a year from the California legislature to develop diversity and uh, enhancing programs. And as part of this, these schools have been dramatically expanding the way that these diversity statements are used. First, this began at UC Berkeley in 2017, then UC Davis in 2018, 2019, and UC Santa Cruz also. 
And in these searches, um, the best example of this is UC Davis in 2018-2019 did an open discipline search where the primary consideration was the ability of applicants to address the need, quote, to address the needs of African-American, Latino, Chicano, Hispanic, and Native American students or communities. And as part of these searches, the search committees were handpicked to include only those faculty members that were most sympathetic to the efforts of diversity, uh, these diversity initiatives. And most importantly, the biggest change was the way these, eval- these diversity statements were evaluated. The UC Davis's vice chancellor uh, explained that this change was a, a quote-unquote game changer. In these searches, it is the candidate's diversity statement that is considered first, and only those who submit persuasive and inspiring statements can advance for complete consideration. So basically, these statements morph from being a plus factor to being the only threshold requirement that would matter. If you didn't get a, a passing score on these statements, you would not be looked at in any way, shape, or form based on your merits, your teaching, anything else in your application. These statements were it. The rubrics that were developed were particularly egregious and are still, you know, they're still using the same rubrics. They're very clear that this is meant to be an ideological screening test. One example is that there's a category for awareness. How aware are you of diversity issues? And the rubrics say that any applicant who, quote, provides a reason for not considering diversity in hiring or who, quote, sees it as antithetical to academic freedom or the university's research mission would receive a failing score, a one or a two out of five on this component of the application. So whatever the candidate's other merits, holding those views would make advancement beyond the diversity screening unlikely or nearly impossible. In other words, if you share the the views of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, that programs like Affirmative Action are ultimately harmful to minorities because they create mismatch or uh, foster the perception that minorities cannot succeed without government intervention, if you express any of that in your diversity statement or even any hesitation about the balancing the need for academic freedom with the focus on diversity, then you will not, almost certainly not be hired in one of these searches. You would either have to cloak your beliefs or be rejected based on your viewpoint. I uh, was, and have been, continue to be very curious to see how these statements have been evaluated in practice. The University of California has, uh, schools have been very resistant to releasing much data about this question. But fortunately, uh, the uh, schools publish a report to the legislator uh, reporting on these uh, diversity initiatives. And so the results that have come out of that have been particularly striking. UC Berkeley, their pilot search that used diversity statements as a threshold requirement, uh, there were, for one search, 893 qualified applicants. And of those applicants, 679 of them were eliminated solely because their diversity statements were deemed inadequate. In other words, UC Berkeley rejected 76% of qualified applicants without even considering their teaching skills or their publication history or their potential for academic excellence or their ability to contribute to their field. These applicants could well have been the next Albert Einstein, the next Jonas Salk, or they might have been outstanding and innovative educators who would make a significant difference in their students' lives, but there's no way the university would have known that. They didn't even look past the diversity statement. UC Davis has reported uh, informally similar results, the saying, well, the saying that in some departments, up to 50% of applicants were eliminated just based on the diversity statement. So this is a significant concern raising the specter of ideological litmus tests. There's another concern related to the way these diversity statements are used, which is the potential for discrimination based on the scholarship that one has done. Under the standards used by the UC schools, any applicant whose research 
quote, contributes to understanding the barrier facing women and minorities in academic disciplines or addresses topics like health disparities, educational access and achievement, political engagement, economic justice, social mobility, and civil and human rights would receive credit for their contribution to diversity. And, and I think most of those on the call would recognize that that terminology is highly weighted, highly loaded, loaded. A topic like economic justice is not a politically neutral, ideologically neutral standard. It is likely looking for particular types of research, and those that do that type of research will be favored in hiring it's not hard to see how that will result in favoritism to certain kinds of viewpoints. For instance, imagine two prospective law professors. Uh, one publishes an article strongly supporting affirmative action programs uh, in the Harvard Law Review. Another publishes in the Yale Law Review arguing that affirmative action programs are harmful because they create mismatch or are incompatible with the ideas of, equal, of the Equal Protection Clause. Even though those articles are published in journals of nearly identical rank, the first professor would get a high score on his contribution to diversity, and the second professor will likely receive low marks in a highly competitive academic marketplace. This process of giving additional credit to certain kinds of research will likely skew academia even further away from conservative ideas and intellectual diversity. And that's another serious problem. The third problem that I want to highlight is the issue of race discrimination and how these statements uh, potentially can be used to open the door for racial and gender discrimination. As I mentioned, 1996, the voters in California enacted Prop 209. This was directly intended to be a rebuke to the affirmative action and diversity programs that had festered at the University of California. This was actually the most attention was given specifically to the University of California. But unfortunately, instead of reforming their ways, the University of California almost immediately sought to undermine the, the spirit of Prop 209 by continuing to take race and gender into account in invisible or subtle ways. I don't think anyone should have an illusion that race and gender are not being taken into account in everyday searches uh, at the University of California. Consider uh, that the fact that every department establishes targets for the number of women and minorities that it will hire. Our search committees are expressly required to engage in targeted outreach for the sole aim of diversifying the racial and gender composition of the applicant pool. For instance, they're expected to make outreach to historically black colleges and universities, uh, but unsurprisingly, no similar attempted outreach is made to underprivileged students at colleges and universities in the South or in Appalachia. And most schools, the UC system at least, a, a euphemistically named equity advisor is assigned to each search and has the authority to scrutinize the applicant pool. And if the pool is not diverse enough, the search will continue until it is or the position will not be filled or rolled over to a subsequent year. So there's a, a clear race and gender screening happening in, in most searches. But until the diversity and equity statements were you introduced, this was done very subtly because race and gender uh, was mostly masked for at least part of the evaluation process. But the use of diversity statements has allowed for open recognition of race and gender. In their diversity statements, applicants are encouraged to describe their, quote, life experiences and to explain how those experiences give them, quote, an understanding of the barriers facing women and domestic minorities, end quote. In other words, applicants are rewarded for discussing their own race or their ethnicity or their gender as part of these statements. And if you look at the model diversity statements provided to faculty members serving on search committees, like the one at UC Davis, they expressly, uh, these model statements actually disclose you know, the applicant's race or ethnicity. The first sentence of one of them is, as a Hispanic American, or as a Mexican American, or as a woman of color. Um, you know, these are the, exactly the, you know, the first the things that are being presented to the search committee as a model diversity statement.
the results uh, of this, I think, are what you what would expect, or even even more dramatic than you'd expect. The UC Davis pilot program that I mentioned earlier, they reported the results uh, just back in December to 2019 to the California legislature. And first of all, it's worth noting that the way they measured success was only two things. One is how many underrepresented minorities applied, became finalists, and were hired. And that's defined as Blacks, Hispanics, and Native Americans only. And two, how many women applied, became finalists, and were hired. In other words, all of the talk about these efforts being for increasing the student wellness or student satisfaction or increasing the diversity of thought or anything else like that is it, completely belied by the fact that the only results they're looking at are racial and gender results of, of hiring. Now, the results of this program are, I think, truly shocking. They compared these searches to all other searches conducted at UC Davis in the year of 2018-2019. So in all the other searches, under 10% of the applicant pool were minorities, just about 5% of the finalists, and 2.3% of the ultimate hires uh, were minorities. But in the pilot searches, there's seven searches, seven spots, nearly a third of the applicants were minorities, over 80% of the finalists, and a full 100% of those hired for these pilot searches were minorities. And the results for female hires were also quite sharp. 87.5% of those hired through the pilot program were women compared to 45.5% campus-wide, which 45.5 is pretty close to parity. 87.5 is clearly disproportionate. Results like that do not happen just by chance, especially the 100% of those hired being minorities, um, the 80% of the finalists. And really that jump from a third, about a third, you know, a third of the applicants being minorities to 80% of the finalists, it's likely that much of that can be attributed to the diversity statements and to the screening that's happening there. These results are being posted by UC Davis as a great success for these programs. They're going to continue to do similar things in the upcoming years. And have gotten funding for more pilot programs at UC Davis and UC Santa Cruz in the upcoming uh, searches. At UC Santa Cruz right now, a third of searches happening this year are using a very similar methodology. So this is seen as this display of you know, racial and gender discrimination is seen as a big success for the diversity uh, administrators and bureaucrats at UC Davis. So that describes the, the situation, the problem that's happening at UC schools and I think spreading out elsewhere as well. So if I've convinced you that this is a, a serious problem to intellectual diversity and to the idea of equal protection under, under the law, then the question is, you know, what legal challenges or what legal issues arise that could be brought against what UC Davis is doing so one minor argument could be that the UC schools are exceeding their mandate from the UC Board of Regents and going beyond what the policy manual contains, uh, which in California law has the force of statute. But this argument is unlikely to have long-term impact because the manual can just be changed and other states continue to follow UC's lead. So I'm more interested in state or federal constitutional arguments that could result in long-term change in California or nationwide. So first, I want to talk about the First Amendment implications. So the First Amendment rights of faculty members is a subject of intense dispute, and there's a, a long lingering circuit split over this question. As the earlier cases about loyalty oaths show, when the state government or, or uh, state officials attempt to interfere with faculty, the case law is very clear that there is an expansive vision of protection for First Amendment rights. But unfortunately, the picture is a lot less clear when the right of individual faculty members and the rights of academic institutions clash. Courts, including the Supreme Court, have expressed a reluctance to interfere with the prerogatives of educational institutions, rightfully because of the concern of academic freedom. 
So courts have largely been very deferential to academic institutions. The test that applies mostly is the, the Pickering test uh, that's used for all public employees, which balances the public interest in having a free and unhindered debate on matters of public importance with the employer's right to prevent speech that would impede proper performance of employees' duties. And so this has been a, a deferential test by and large. But if you look at the cases that have come out, most of them make clear that there's a distinction when you're talking about viewpoint discrimination. Even though content-based restrictions are often made in this context, in the shaping of curriculum, viewpoint discrimination has consistently been seen as, as particularly egregious and violative of the First Amendment. There's an additional wrinkle here, uh, which is the uh, Supreme Court's decision of Garcetti v. in 2006, which essentially says that if a public employee is speaking pursuant to their official job duties, then the First Amendment does not apply, the Constitution does not protect them from discipline. In the Garcetti decision, the Supreme Court actually noted concerns with academic freedom that if this decision was applied to professors, it would potentially eviscerate First Amendment rights. Justice Souter, in his dissent, focused on that concern. He noted that teachers necessarily speak and write pursuant to their official duties, and that therefore uh, the majority's opinion could have grave consequences for the protection of academic freedom. In response, the majority recognized this concern and said that they're not going to resolve it in that case. They're going to punt and say, we need not decide whether the analysis would apply to a case involving speech related to scholarship and teaching. And so unsurprisingly, a very pointed circuit split has arisen. The Seventh Circuit held that Garcetti essentially applied to almost everything professors do. They said that expression is a teacher's stock and trade, and that therefore it applies to teaching and service responsibilities. In sharp contrast, the Ninth Circuit rejected the application of Garcetti to professors. It concluded that since academic speech is a special concern of the First Amendment, its application would directly conflict with the important First Amendment, val First Amendment values articulated by the Supreme Court. And so in, in the Ninth Circuit, the Pickering test is clearly what applies. Uh, Garcetti is inapplicable completely to the academic setting. So the, that lingering dispute, there are other, I think, very interesting legal issues that are unsettled. What is the impact of the fact that the university is arguably engaging in viewpoint discrimination, where in these rubrics, they are saying if you express the viewpoint that diversity programs are harmful or counterproductive or minorities are better without them, if you express that viewpoint, you are going to be penalized. If you express a contrary viewpoint, you will be rewarded. What is the impact of that? There's, I think, a lot, a lot of interesting questions one could ask about how does one evaluate these kinds of job requirements that borderline or get close to being litmus tests or ideological screening requirements. I have an article uh, up on SSRN about this topic and trying to get published where I highlight certain factors I think should be taken into account. For instance, how closely related is the, the diversity statement to the job requirements? What's happening, I think, here is that the university is trying to generalize a requirement that a faculty member be qualified to handle diverse students, but to take that to you have to prove your loyalty to the ideas the university is espousing. It's a universal requirement for all applicants. Uh, you're scrutinizing privately held ideas, and you, know, you have administrators increasingly doing the review, and you have this really intense holistic, uh, sorry, intense threshold uh, screening requirement instead of a holistic review. And so those are all factors I point to suggesting that this should raise grave First Amendment concerns. It should be evaluated aggressively uh, is, is, you know, under uh, strict scrutiny or an aggressive uh, form of review because of the, the real danger that the use of these statements crosses into posing an ideological litmus test. 
so I will leave that. I'm sure there will be more questions about that, so I will leave that issue for now. I want to briefly, before I end, talk about equal protection as well uh, and Prop 209. So under, first of all, Prop 209 in California, policies such as quotas, set-asides, and race and sex-conscious goals are forbidden in higher education in California, and the California Supreme Court has interpreted Prop 209 quite broadly uh, to apply to timetables, incentives for minority hiring, anything of that sort. But there are a couple of counter-arguments that universities uh, would likely offer. One is that they're only engaging in outreach to increase the pool of applicants, and some courts in California have found that to be permissible. But the response, I think, to that is that what the UC schools are doing goes far beyond that kind of outreach. These search, you know, they're making sure that certain racial composition is met in the pool, and they're very directly targeting minorities, and they are you know, increasingly uh, go, you know, going far beyond what courts have upheld. And then second is, I think, the results that you see from the UC Davis results, you know, with uh, 100% of the minority of the applicants being minorities, uh, shows that favorable preferences are in fact being given, and not just uh, increased outreach to increase the pool, which does not account accounted for the jump from 10 to 30% compared to of searches, but did not account for the jump to 80 or to 100%, which was not based on the, the pool, but based on the methodology used by the those screening applicants. The university can also argue that it is required to engage in affirmative action under, under federal law and is therefore exempt from Prop 209. Uh, and there is some truth to that. The university is required to measure racial diversity in the workplace and to set goals for achieving a more representative workforce. But the University of California is going far beyond anything required under federal law. Uh, federal law just requires you into account and to set goals when there's a significant disparity. And actually, interestingly, the uh, University of California Davis's 2019 Affirmative Action Plan shows that many of the departments and colleges at UC Davis that are a part of this pilot program are actually already adequately represented, representative for many of the groups that uh, the, this search is looking for in hiring. So they are already representative with Hispanics, for instance, in almost every department. And so there's no reason, an excuse under federal law to justify this. And then finally, federal equal protection law this would be an Arlington Heights type of case that there, where there's a significant evidence of uh, racial disparity in the outcome, and there's also clear evidence that the goal, you know, the you know, the primary and, and uh, significant purpose of what UC Davis is doing is to hire minorities, that it is directly aimed at specifically Blacks, Hispanics, uh, Chicanos, uh, Native Americans, specific minority groups, and that this is how success is being measured. So there is, I think, significant evidence that under Arlington Heights, uh, strict scrutiny should apply to the policy, and uh, there's, the Supreme Court has been you know, very limited in when it has allowed diversity to be a, a compelling interest. Really, it's only found that in higher education for, and, and in responding to past history of uh, de jure segregation. Otherwise, it has said, no, uh, just improving diversity is not a compelling interest. Uh, the university's uh, goal of saying, well, uh, you know, students are diverse, so the faculty needs to be diverse, and that is highly unlikely to be seen as a compelling interest, and these programs are not tailored uh, adequately to, to not, uh, to, to, for instance, you don't need to impose a direct litmus test or directly look at race in the statements. Uh, and so there, there's, I think, a significant evidence that this, these programs would be found unconstitutional under the Equal Protection Clause, assuming that strict scrutiny applies to them. So with that, I will open up for, for any questions. 
Very good. Thank you so much, Daniel. Uh, Daniel, it looks like we do have two questions right out of the gate. Let's go to our first caller. This is Roger Clegg at the uh, Center for uh, Equal Opportunity. And first of all, thank you very much, Daniel, for that, that great presentation. The only you know, additional thing or the additional problem that occurs to me with these is the extent to which prospective employees are going to be hired only if they are willing to engage in illegal acts. That is, they're saying that, well, you know, in order to work for us, you have to be somebody that is willing to violate Proposition 209. Is that is that a fair characterization of what these uh, diversity statements are saying? There's a question if you think about the First Amendment uh, implications of whether the university can require a professor to you know to implement programs like affirmative action that that might be unlawful under state law. I think the the case law suggests that yes, the university could require an applicant to administer its policies. It could require an applicant, you know, a, a professor to announce to the students the diversity programs the university is engaged in, for instance. Uh, so I, I think they probably you know could require that. I think what the, the University of California does, which goes beyond that is require ideological conformity, require agreement of ideas, not just of action. It's saying we, we don't just want professors to be willing to do the things we want them to do. You know, for instance, they could require professors to do implicit bias training, uh, however dubious the value of that is. They could say everyone who wants to teach here could has to do implicit bias training. But what they can't do, I think, is say, yeah, and you have to agree with everything we say in that training, and you can't have your own ideas, you can't express your position to the contrary, and we're going to screen to make sure that you agree with us on on these issues. That's what I think University of California is slipping into, uh, and that's why I think it it borders like the becomes like the loyalty oaths, where it's not just requiring you to be on board or to not go against their policies, but it requires you to intellectually agree and actively champion their policies. Well, let me follow up with this question, and I think it's you know it's always helpful to you know to put the shoe on the other foot, you know, when you're thinking about questions like this. And you know, suppose that you know you had a, a university that was you know in the, in, the, in the battle days where um, it had long had an announced policy of of you know refusing to hire African Americans, and you know they had had uh, uh, suffered uh, you know legal penalties for that. Um, you know, they'd been sued by the federal government and so forth and you know, told in no uncertain terms that that was illegal and they couldn't do that anymore. And so one of the requirements when they hired people was that, well, you know, look, we don't want to get, you know, we don't want to be breaking the law and getting penalized for that. So uh, we know there are a lot of people out there that, you know, don't like uh, the fact that we're now hiring black faculty members or we're not, or that we're admitting, you know, black students. But you know, that, that's just too bad. We don't want to be hiring people to work here that are not going to, you know, to follow the law. The fact that the focus is on actions rather than, you know, rather than beliefs, you know, they're, you know, we're not saying that you have to, to like it. You can believe ideologically, you know, whatever racist notions you, you want, but you have to act in a way that's consistent with the law because, you know, we, we the university, um, you know, are, are required to do that. You know, conversely, if you had a university that says we only want to hire people that are willing to break the law, it's hard to believe that the the federal government would would say that. Well, you know, can't do anything about that. You know, we yeah. can we can get an injunction against the university, but if they want to hire people, you know, only people that uh, are going to continue to violate the law, then it's. I'm not a First Amendment expert, but that that seems to me to be odd. 
I, I think yeah, there are two, two, two levers you know, the university could use. Let's say your example of uh, a professor who is racially, racially, racially you know, someone who's a, a bigoted professor who wants to be hired, or uh, any other you know, idea like, about that nature. Uh, there, there are two things that a university could use. One is, again, conduct. So if, a professor has, if there's any evidence that a professor is engaging in any kind of discrimination in the classroom, in any way treating students differently based on race, of course uh, the university can take action based on that, and there, there's no suggestion that in any of the First Amendment case law that that would be uh, limited uh, just because they're, they're taking action based on the results uh, of, of the action and not ideas being expressed. I think sec- secondly would be evaluating based on scholarship, uh, which is to say if a professor is engaging in faulty scholarship that promotes very outdated and very false racial theories, then that could be evaluated based on the academic uh, standards of the profession, so bad, bad history work or bad scientific research, and professors could be not hired or fired or penalized based on the quality of their research. Uh, it's unlikely that someone engaging in very shoddy, racially biased uh, scholarship would get published in a good journal, that they're not going to have the academic um, metrics uh, required to be hired at a university. And so I think those both of those levers are available to the university. My argument would be that what the university here is doing, it goes goes beyond that, when it slips into requiring ideological values conformity and an agreement of ideas, and it's not even linked closely to the actual scholarly output. That you're talking about mathematics professors being hired based on these diversity statements. You're not talking about a, you know, someone who teaches on an area that is relevant uh, to diversity issues. You're talking about a mathematics professor being required to espouse these ideas or not be hired. And so I think that goes far beyond what uh, is re- required by you know, the norms of a profession or um, academic standards to be a universal requirement for all applicants, regardless of their, their position, regardless of their role in the university. And that really is what resembles the loyalty oath controversy. Let's go to our next caller. Yes, my question basically is, is uh, if you're not allowed to do prayer in school and uh, you are of what was considered the majority race, and uh, you're in a class that now considers that that race is not fair to the rest of the races. How do you stop the the discrimination? And yet the court says that they're only going to listen to strict scrutiny. And I don't understand how it can be so strict as saying that a particular religion or religious view, if expressed, is unconstitutional, and yet say that it can't be monitoring other forms such as gender discrimination or gender views that don't necessarily conform with all of the students' views in that class. And maybe even their grades get downgraded because they don't necessarily agree with other students Mm -hmm. that are more liberal in that class. Is the Supreme Court going to listen to such cases, or they're just going to set them aside and let the schools decide how they're going to deal with it? Not sure I fully understood your your, the, your question. Could you rephrase? Thank you. So what I'm saying is, is if you have a particular person that has a particular religious point of view, and they try to express that in today's public universities and even private colleges, you're told that you can't express that because it's unconstitutional to force your views or your prayers on other people. However, if somebody in a more liberal group says, well, these are my views on 
gender, and it's extremely important to me. And one of the definitions of religion is what is most important to you. But that yeah. person is allowed to express that, or they are allowed to express that they are a minority and they feel mm. that, quote unquote, white power has been tough on them. But if the white person says anything in defense, mm. well, lots of whites have done very positive things in history, and that's benefited yeah. everyone. How much involvement is the Supreme Court going to uh, have in sure. making decisions on whether they can say those things or not? Or is it left just to the public university to decide, well, we won't allow school prayer and we won't allow religious talk by mm. certain individuals, but we will allow more liberal uh, views to be espoused by other people, maybe people that sure. support socialism, for instance. I think maybe put aside the question of official you know, prayer or official religious activity, which is a, a very di a different topic. Uh, scholars, uh, religious freedom scholars, can talk about and those look at separation of church and state. But specifically with the question of, of expression, religious expression or political expression or, or expression about all kinds of topics would be considered protected speech for the students on the university and for the professors as well to, to talk about matters of public concern. Uh, under the the Pickering standard that I mentioned, the for professors, the protection is, is, is somewhat more limited than for students. So a professor cannot be disrupting the jobs. He cannot be going against the, the policies of the institution. There are limits to a professor's ability to express themselves, especially in the classroom. The, the cases looking at professor's speech tend to be very favorable to the university when the speech is in the classroom in particular, uh, although some cases have found that there is a right, a professor does have a right to express themselves as they wish, the majority uh, trend is to say no. If, you, if you're in the classroom, you're you're doing your job, and there's easy you can easily limit the expression of a professor in the classroom. On the other hand, uh, when you're when you get to the areas like research and scholarship, which is much more personally held by the professor, it's not uh, you know they're not speaking uh, with a hat of a university official when they're they're speaking in their research. They're clearly engaging in their own private research, expressing their own thoughts. Uh, courts have been much more protective of the rights of professors to express themselves and that universities cannot punish them based on the viewpoint that is being expressed in their scholarship. Um, they can engage in neutral evaluation criteria, like looking at the you know, academic value and merits, applying uh, widely held uh, disciplinary norms of the profession, but they cannot discriminate based on viewpoint. So there, even for professors, there's protective case law with regard to scholarship uh, and external speech, and also uh, speech like if a professor goes on Twitter and says something controversial, that has been seen as protective speech. The university cannot go and punish them for their private speech expressed outside of the university altogether. Let's go ahead and flip the switch and go to our next question. Thank you. This is uh, George Lanoue from the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. I appreciate your discussion of what is going to be a growing problem in higher education. I wonder, was there substantial debate on various campuses among the faculty, and has AAUP taken a position on this kind of uh, pre-job ideological screening? So to answer your question about the substantial debate, I think the answer is largely no uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that in University of California, as I mentioned, that they're using these uh, advancing faculty diversity grants from the 
California legislator to implement these policies. And they're doing so in a way that bypasses faculty governance so that they don't actually need to go to the faculty to get approval for these programs. They're done uh, from the university office of the president, which is the central office of the UC system, uh, directly to the institutions and to the departments that are participating without the need for the faculty uh, senate, the faculty governance to have any say in the matter. So there's been limited debate because of the, the way that UC, University of California in particular has implemented uh, these requirements. There are a couple things I mentioned. One, uh, Abigail Thompson, when she wrote her uh, piece in the American Mathematics uh, Society Journal, uh, I'm sorry, American Mathematics Association uh, Journal, and also in her Wall Street Journal piece, there was uh, an outcry against her. Uh, a professor tried to get signatories to try and get her disciplined, and there was a backlash to that of professors standing up for her, a wide variety of professors, uh, some of whom agree with the policies, but said, no, it's wrong to try to punish someone for expressing their concerns. Uh, we need to have free academic thought on the university, freedom of thought and, and freedom of expression on the university campus. So I was very encouraged to see professors standing up in support of Abigail Thompson. The other thing I'd mention is that right now at UC Davis, there is a debate going on in the faculty senate over diversity statements. A professor there uh, introduced a resolution against the use of diversity statements, and then the administration introduced a counter-resolution in favor of them, saying that they're a you know, valuable part of a holistic evaluation. Uh, and so there is ongoing debate right now at UC Davis the universities come out very strongly in favor of these statements, uh, and so I think they're, they're likely going to be some support, although maybe tepid support at that. There is debate happening, limited amount of debate, partially because of the procedural uh, mechanism that the university used to, to really bypass the faculty. And that, that's another, another concern. You know, more and more things are being shifted to administrators, to bureaucrats. The statistic that really is striking is that in 2018, you know, the Economist uh, found that there are 175 employees at the University of California Berkeley who are diversity officials. You know, that's their job is to to work on diversity issues. These are not faculty members. You know, these are individuals that their their goal is to to increase diversity. And so, increasingly, the you know, bureau, these diversity bureaucrats have more and more power and influence, and they're they're taking over the process these searches. And so that's a real a danger. You're moving away from professors who are likely to be protective of academic freedom, likely to be v protective of free speech rights, and likely to implement you know, norms, objective standards of their profession, and moving more and more to bureaucrats who don't really have concern for free speech in the same way, and are less likely to want to protect the rights of faculty members. And so that's a real concern, uh, that, that shift in power that, that's ongoing. Thank you. What about AAUP? Have they entered it into this at all? I'm not aware of AAUP actually taking a stance thus far on, on this topic. It would seem highly relevant. Yes, I agree. I'm not aware of anything that they have said about the topic. Next caller, we are flipping the switch for you. Yeah, hi. Uh, this is Mitchell Keeter. Uh, my question concerns the case law that discusses academic freedom, because although I haven't read them, I would assume it's not a doctrine that gives uh, universities absolute discretion, but rather it is designed to foster the fullest expression of ideas, including uh, unpopular ones. So it would seem to me that if we actually look at the meat of, of the doctrine, it would not be possible for these schools to assert that as a defense because they are not in any way implementing those principles and in fact violating. I mean, is, is there a way to 
even if it's not affirmative viewpoint discrimination, it's simply not a valid application of academic freedom that could justify a challenge, that, that, that could yeah. prevent a challenge to it. Yeah, if you look at the, the cases regarding academic freedom, specifically, again, when, they, when professors are kind of butting up against universities, let's say a, a tenure dispute or hiring disputes, courts have typically been very deferential to the academic institutions because they've said, you know, we, we can't really second-guess academic judgments about what, what kind of scholarship is needed, what values the university wants to promote, what direction they want to go in with their, their research or teaching endeavors. So there, there's a high degree of deference. The reason I, I mentioned their, uh, viewpoint discrimination specifically is that that's been seen as a, diverge, a point of divergence where at that point when the university is, is saying, we, we don't like your viewpoint that you're expressing, then the courts have been more willing to scrutinize and, and uh, evaluate carefully. You know, an example is the university absolutely uh, can say we want to hire a professor in early American history, you know, colonial period, revolutionary era period of U.S. history. And if someone is not qualified for that, let's say their research is on the Civil War or the progressive movement, uh, that, then they're not going to be hired for that position, and that's absolutely okay. You know, universities do that kind of hiring distinction all the time. I think when you then go more specifically, though, into the viewpoint that is expressed, uh, you can't, I, I don't believe the university could say, well, we only want a professor who is going to be highly critical of Thomas Jefferson. If you have said good things about Jefferson because he is a slave owner, you can't be hired. There aren't many cases dealing with that kind of granularity or specificity, but my sense of it is that that would be a viewpoint discrimination that would be unconstitutional. And there's a thin line between those two things, but courts have traditionally, I think, seen that distinction and what University of California is doing, especially with the rubrics that they're using, uh, where you, you know, if certain things are expressed, you cannot be hired, or if your scholarship is on a certain direction, you can't be hired, that crosses the line or, or should cross the line into the, the forbidden category of evaluative criteria. Let's go ahead and go to our next caller. Daniel, do you have anything you'd like to cover in more detail or jump into before we get to our Sure. I, I, one, more, one more thing I wanted to, to mention briefly, which is that there's a real dangerous tendency uh, in universities and elsewhere. One, one thing that's happening here is that universities are arguing, well, if a professor is not on board with these programs, if a professor is not uh, you know, 100% committed to equity and, and inclusion and diversity uh, the way we see it, then students are not going to be able to be in that classroom. They're going to be offended. They're not going to feel supported. It's going to harm them. And I think that I just want to call that out in particular as a real danger of what the universities are doing here. They're essentially equating thoughts, ideas uh, with harmful action, that you know, students can't handle being in a classroom with a professor who sees things differently than them. And that's really dangerous. Uh, that is completely antithetical to the nature of the academy, of, of the nature of academic freedom, of the nature of the university as a place where people can have different ideas, contesting, contesting and debating and deliberating and coming to, to a truth. So I think that's, that's a particular danger with what the university is doing is that, that idea, mentality is going to take hold. That it, you know, if a professor disagrees uh, with affirmative action programs, let's say, then they're, going, they're not going to be able to handle diverse students. Uh, you, you see that at universities in California and elsewhere, that kind of thinking. Students are uh, pr protest or get upset if a professor disagree, has disagreed. Uh, and universities need to be pushed back and say, no, that, that's not right. Uh, you can't have difference of ideas. You can't have a professor who's written against affirmative action and yet can teach uh, minority students without any problems uh, and can do so effectively and do so well. So I think that that is a real danger uh, that needs to be uh, vocally pushed back on. 
Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Daniel. Do you have any closing thoughts before we end the call today? Sure. Uh, I just would, would say uh, what's happening in California really is, shot, I think, pretty dramatic. You know, the, the fact that uh, you know, 76% of applicants in one search were rejected without even looking at their research or their qual- academic quality. The fact that you know, 100% the hires for this one search at Davis were, 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 under, were minorities. This is uh, not happening by chance, and it is uh, going to be spreading, going to be uh, adopted by additional schools if University of California is not stopped. And it is, you know, it's really ironic that in the name of diversity, there's this this effort that is really stifling intellectual diversity, saying that if you don't agree with us, you are not welcome to teach here. And I, I really hope that we will continue to see pushback and that the University of California will be stopped and other schools will not, not follow its lead down this really dangerous path of requiring these ideological litmus tests. So I'm, I'm hoping that they can be stopped. Very good. Well, Daniel, on behalf of the Federal Society and our audience today, I want to thank you for the benefit of your valuable time and expertise. We really have appreciated this hour, and we thank you for your time and uh, knowledge. We welcome all listener feedback by email at info at fedsoc.org. Thank you all for joining us for this call. This call is now adjourned. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this practice group podcast. For materials related to this podcast and other Federalist Society multimedia, please visit the Federalist Society's website at fedsoc.org slash multimedia.